we'll get started. Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter uh, 20. What I want to do tonight is I want to contrast uh, our tendency to faithlessness with God's, um, uh, God's sure faithfulness. Uh, we tend to be faithless. We tend to stumble and fall sometimes, right? But God never stumbles and falls. God is perfect. God is always faithful. And what we see in our two chapters we're going to look at tonight, Genesis chapter 20 and 21, is we see this in clear contrast. We see Abraham's stumbling. We say, see Abraham's faithlessness. But then in the next chapter, we see God's great faithfulness. And it's really encouraging to be reminded that even when we stumble and fall, God always is faithful, right? That's really, really good news. Uh, we don't have to worry about God being faithless. God is always faithful. As a matter of fact, before we jump into the text, look in 2 Timothy, New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look what it says in verse 13. Back at verse 11. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, what? He remains faithful. And there's a contrast between our tendency to faithlessness and his uh, overarching faithfulness. And we see this in our text. So what I want to do is I want to begin by talking about man's faithlessness, and then I want to talk about uh, God's faithfulness. So let's talk about man's faithlessness in Genesis chapter 20. I want to just set the scene for you. Remember God appeared to Abram, and he made him some great promises. He says, Abram, I'm going to give you a son, even though he and Sarah were advanced in years and were not able to have children to this point. He said, I'm going to give you a son. Through your son, I'm going to give you many descendants. Your descendants will be a great nation. I'm going to give your descendants a, a land in which to live. And then I'm going to use your descendants to bless all the peoples on the face of the earth. And, and we know that how that promise was fulfilled. We know that God gave Abraham Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Joseph. And before you knew it, there was this mighty uh, nation of people we call the Israelites, and then God preserved his people through many dangers, toils, and snares. And one day, in the fullness of time, God sent through the Israelites his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to earth, uh, born of the Virgin Mary, who was a, a Jewish girl. And he came to this earth and took on human flesh, fully God, fully man. And Jesus went to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Uh, when John the Baptist saw him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he died on the cross for the sins of the world. And because of his death and his burial and his resurrection now, if anybody from any nation, any tribe, any tongue, if anyone places their faith in Jesus Christ alone, they can experience the blessing of salvation. So through the Israelites came the Messiah. And through the Israelites, all the peoples on the face of the earth had the potential to be blessed with the salvation that only comes through Jesus, right? So that's how that promise to Abraham or Abram was fulfilled by God. So he makes the promise to Abram, and then Abram has to walk by faith because there's a, a delay between the, the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. And we see 
Uh, Abram's wavering, and God keeps coming to him and says, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you a son. And, and he keeps helping him to walk by faith and to have the strength he needs to walk by faith. And so uh, we've been learning what it looks like from Abram's life to walk by faith, and God changed his name to Abraham as he entered into this covenant with him. But in chapter 20, we see Abraham stumble and fall. And, and just by the way, it's one of the reasons I love the Bible. It's an honest book. The Bible has heroes, but the Bible does not hide the faults of the heroes. And, and that's good because none of us are perfect, right? And we can identify sometimes with the stumbling of our heroes of the faith. And, and we see that Abraham stumbles. And Abraham has a moment of faithlessness, a moment of weakness. So what happens? Look there with me. In Genesis chapter 20, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So they come into a foreign country, and he says, she is my sister. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? If you've been coming for, for a few months listening to these studies, that should sound familiar to you. You should have a flashback. As a matter of fact, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Look what it says in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister. We just read that, right? Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. And so they enter into Egypt under this uh, ruse. And before you know it, Pharaoh takes Sarah into his household, and God sends plagues and afflictions against Pharaoh. And Pharaoh finds out that Abram lied to him. He says, what are you doing? And he said, get, take your wife and get out of here. I don't want, I don't want any trouble with your God. And, and, and we see that Abram had a weak moment there, a moment of fear. But in Genesis chapter 12, he does the exact same thing. How many of you have ever committed a sin and you didn't learn your lesson? And before you knew it, you found yourself doing the exact same thing. That's what Abraham's doing here. Same as that situation, goes into the land of Abimelech, and he's, and he's scared for his life, so he says, uh, uh, Sarah, tell him that you are my sister. Now, back to, to Genesis 20. See how this plays out. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech, this is the king of the area, and said uh, in, in a dream by night, and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Wow. So Abimelech says, Oh, this is a pretty woman. I'm going to take her into my household. She's going to be uh, one of my wives. And he goes to bed that night, and God says, You're about to die. Pretty scary, right? So what happens next? Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to, say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. So he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not 
return her, know that you shall surely die, and you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, here's the million dollar question. What did you see that you did this thing? So he's saying, why did you do this? Now, we're going to look at Abraham's response and we're going to see why he was faithless. Why he stumbled and committed the same sin he committed in Egypt. All right. So his answer is very revealing and we're going to see some of ourselves in this answer. So what does Abraham say in response to the question, why have you done this. We're going to see where faithlessness comes from. So look there in your notes. Faithlessness can be caused by fear. Faithlessness can be caused by fear. Look what it says in verse 11. Why'd you do this thing? Abraham said, verse 11, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. So he does it based upon fear. They're going to kill me if they believe she's my wife. And, and, and so fear is driving the train here. Fear is what's causing him to lie about uh, Sarah. He didn't ask what's the right thing to do. He didn't ask God to help him in this moment, in, in, in this situation. He just says, let's lie. That's the best way to deal with this. He didn't ask what is right. He asked what is safe. He didn't ask the right questions. Listen, the fear of man, this is in your notes, the fear of man leads to poor decisions. The fear of man leads to poor decisions. In Proverbs 29, 25, the Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. If you live your life based upon the fear of man, you are headed for trouble. It's a snare, it's a trap. It will eventually cause you the fear of man to to dishonor God and to disobey God and to live in a way that is not honoring to the Lord. And so he had this fear of man and it led to poor decisions. So you and I, we need to remember to live for God and not fear man or circumstances. We need to learn that even in intimidating situations, God is God. He's on his throne. Go to him with your trouble. Go to him with your concern. Trust him through the difficulty. But don't let the fear of man lead you to do things that lack integrity, to do things that are wrong, just to to please them or stay in good graces with them. So faithlessness can be caused by fear. Secondly, faithlessness can be caused by rational, rationalization. Rationalization. Look what it says in verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So he's kind of saying, well, technically, you know, you know, he's just trying to smooth over his lie here. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. And so he's trying to kind of rationalize his decision, his decision to sin against God, his decision to sin against Sarah, right? His lie caused Sarah to end up in another man's household, and his sin was against Abimelech. Abimelech was innocent. He didn't know that she was a married woman. And so his sin was against God and Sarah and this king. His sin caused a lot of problems. But he's rationalizing his behavior here. She's technically, you know, by you know, family is what he's saying here. And that's just not the, the overarching truth of the situation. 
Listen, our hearts are deceitful. And they can cause us to make excuses for our sin. Over in Jeremiah 17, 9, the Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And if, if your heart is not focused upon the Lord, if you are not seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, the old sin nature can lead you astray. Your heart can, can creep up with some deceitfulness and lead you astray. So he's rationalizing here, and his rationalization led him to make a very poor decision. So learn to ask this question. When you're, when you're wanting to do the wrong thing, you're wanting to sin, you're wanting to get away with something, and you're trying to rationalize why you should do it, or why you should get away with it, or why it was okay that you did it, instead of rationalizing, just ask this very simple question. What does God think? What does God think? I mean, if he would have stopped... When he entered into the territory of Abimelech, he said, what does God think about me lying about Sarah? He might have got a very different answer from the Lord and done things differently. And so faithlessness can be caused by fear, by rationalization. But third, faithlessness can be caused by a failure to make adjustments. Verse 13, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. This was their game plan. When we go into another town, another city, another nation, another kingdom, let's be prepared to lie so my life will be preserved. A failure to make adjustments. And he did not change his game plan when he blew it in Egypt. He had the same plan, right? And listen, because he did not make adjustments, when the opportunity for sin arose again, he took the opportunity. Got that? He blew it. He didn't adjust his game plan. And because he didn't adjust his game plan, when the opportunity presented itself yet again, he fell yet again. So when you blow it, okay, when you blow it, when you stumble and fall, when you find yourself doing something that is characterized by faithlessness, and you know you, you, you did it, you own it, you repent of it, you seek God's cleansing for it. But at that moment, make some adjustments so that you're not in the same situation again with the same temptations. That makes sense? So let's just say that, that uh, one night you're, uh, you're, you're at the house, it's late, you're watching, uh, you're watching TV, and, uh, and, and, you, and, you, and you walk through the kitchen, you glance, and there is a pack of... of Oreo cookies, all right? Or Chewy Chips Ahoy. I love Chewy Chips Ahoy. Or just whatever. And, and, and you get the pack of cookies, and you go sit down, and you eat the entire pack of cookies in one sitting. All right? Not beyond the realm of possibility, okay? Now, you know you shouldn't have eaten the whole pack of cookies, all right? That's, do, I need to, do I need to stop and preach on gluttony for a moment? And we know that... That, that, that's not good for you, okay? An entire pack of cookies is not good for you, all right? And you blew it, all right? So, you find yourself at Walmart or Kroger and you're doing some grocery shopping and you come to the cookie aisle. Now, if you buy the cookies and put them in your buggy and they're on the counter in the kitchen, the next time it's late at night and you're watching TV and you walk through there, you're very prone to grab the pack of cookies again, right? But guess what? If the cookies aren't in your buggy and they don't make it home, and they're not on the counter, 
then the temptation is gone, right? You've made some adjustments so you don't do the same harmful thing. Now, that's a silly illustration, but, but, but think about it in all the areas of sin in our life. If you find yourself and you're around the wrong people and they lead you to do the wrong thing, well, guess what? If you're not around those people again, that temptation's gone, right? You've made some adjustments. You've put some boundaries in your life so you're not around those people in the, right, in the same place, doing the same thing. So now that you won't face that same issue. You've made adjustments in your life. And, and we've got to learn that when we blow it, we own it, we repent of it, we ask God to cleanse us, we get right with him. But then it's critical that we don't buy more Oreo cookies, right? It's critical that we make the adjustments we need. I see conviction in this room, is there? Uh, it's, just, it's just important that we make those adjustments so we don't, we don't put ourselves in the same exact situation again. And we could go on with example after example after example of that. But his failure to make adjustments is what led him to do the same sin. When we do mess up, we need to adjust our lives so it won't happen again. When we do mess up, we need to adjust our lives so it won't happen again. So this is a, a case study. When I was in business school, uh, we did case studies of businesses, and, and you're supposed to read about them and discuss it and learn from their mistakes or learn from their successes. And this is a case study. We, we need to learn from Abraham. The reason he committed the same sin that he committed in Egypt is fear, rationalization, and faithlessness. I mean, and... Uh, uh, fair to make adjustments. So if you're walking around in fear of man, if you're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks, if you're a rationalizer, why, thinking why you should get away with what you want to get away with, if you don't make adjustments in your life, you're going to be faithless just like Abraham was. You're going to have many weak moments. You're going to stumble and fall often. And so that's a picture of man's faithlessness. And we can't just sit back and just you know, just say, oh, Abraham, he really blew it. We've blown it, haven't we? We've blown it. And Abraham reminds us how we've blown it. And he gives us some insight on how not to blow it again. But I want to just give you some thoughts about God's faithfulness. We've seen man's faithlessness, but what about God's faithfulness? We see it here uh, in, the, uh, in the next chapter, chapter 21. Chapter 21. I want you to see three areas of God's faithfulness. First of all, we see God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. Skip down with me to chapter 21, verse 1. Remember, God had kept promising, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you a son. He kept showing up in their life to remind them, I'm going to give you a son. Sarah laughed, uh, didn't believe. And look what it says in chapter 21, verse 1. Way back in chapter 12 was when God made the original promise. Here we are in chapter 21. Many years had passed. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, and Sarah conceived. Here it is, the fulfillment of the promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him. Isaac, just what God told him to name it. Isaac means laughter. This was a reminder that when God had made the promise, Abraham and Sarah had laughed at the possibility that he could give them, advanced in years, a son. But he did. And every time they said his name, they would be reminded that they doubted his promise. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, 
God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I've borne him a son in his old age. And so, chapter 21, here it is. Finally, finally, we've, we've seen the promises made. Now we see the fulfillment of the promise. And can you imagine the joy of Abraham and the joy of Sarah as they, as they welcome this new baby Isaac into the world, a fulfillment of the promises of God. Now, let me just talk about God fulfilling his promises because God made some specific promises that were for Abraham and Sarah, for the nation of Israel, that would lead to redemption for uh, the world, all that place their faith in Christ. And God makes us some promises as well in his word as his people. And so I want to just kind of talk about his promises for a moment because we need to learn how, how faithful God is to keep his promises. So if you look there in your notes, in Christ, that's important, in Christ, we can claim God's wonderful promises for his people. In Christ, we can claim God's wonderful promises for his people. In other words, the promises we're going to look at aren't for everybody. They're not universal. They're for his people, people that know him through his son, Jesus Christ. Look what it says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to show you how these promises of God are fulfilled and embraced and enjoyed through Christ. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 16. He says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea, talking to the church in Corinth. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? He said, in other words, he said, can you trust what I say, what I want to do? And he's saying, as surely as God is faithful, he uses God as an example here, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has been uh, has not been yes and no. He said, in other words, we're not vacillating between yes and no. Just like God is faithful and God comes through, we're going to come through on what we said. And he says, verse 15, sorry, verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always what? Yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Notice there. All the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. So you're either in Christ or you're out of Christ, right? You're either saved and redeemed and born again and in in union with Christ, or you are far from God and lost and in your sins, right? But if you are in God, the promises of God, the yes of God is for you. It's found in Christ. He says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Just a quick aside, it's always okay to say amen. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who has put, also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So he's mentioning here that the, the wonderful promises of God, we can claim them. They're yes in Christ. You can claim them and enjoy them if you know Christ because they're promises for his people, by and large, the promises of Scripture. Now look at the next sentence in your notes. This is where it gets really, really good. Almost shouting ground, all right? Because God always comes through, 
we can build our lives on his promises. Because God always comes through, because he is faithful, even in light of our faithlessness, because he is faithful, we can build our lives upon his promises. Turn over to Hebrews with me, New Testament book of Hebrews. I'm going to show you what the writer of Hebrews says here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. He's going to use Abraham here, who we've been studying, as an example of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 21, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Notice that it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's saying there that God has made some promises and he's sworn by himself and by an oath. You can take it to the bank. He always comes through. Why? It's impossible for God to lie. And and those promises found in Christ, who is in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God as our intercessor, as our high priest, are sure because God cannot lie. And, And turn over to Titus with me, right before Hebrews. Right before Philemon, which is between Hebrews and Titus. Look what it says in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, he's introducing himself, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life. So God has promised that if you're in Christ, you get eternal life, right? Has he promised that? All who are in Christ have eternal life. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. So that's a promise of God. Now look what he says. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, notice that, he never lies, promised before the ages began. She said, wait, how do you know that when you die, you're going to heaven? I know that because God has promised me. And God never, ever lies. He comes through on his promises. Now, we're not capable of that kind of, of, of faithfulness to never, ever let uh, others down. We, we, we make mistakes, and, 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 and we're, we're incapable of always, of always following through on everything we say we're going to do. But God always follows through. God always keeps his word. He always fulfills his promises. And so I want to encourage you to just remember God's, God's faithfulness. I was thinking, as I was studying for this uh, teaching time, I was thinking about God's promises. be honest with you, this is, a, this is really a, um, uh, a weary time for me. Uh, 
um, a tough time for me, a, a, t- a tough season for me because of what's going on in my, in my extended family, what's going on in our church family. You know, we have people in our um, church family that are really suffering right now, really going through some tough stuff, uh, some, some tragedy, some crisis, some prolonged sickness, and, and they're going through some deep waters right now. And, and, my, and to be honest with you, my heart is very heavy um, for them. And, and my, my extended family, my brother's wife, her dad right now is in Texas. He's on hospice. He uh, has colon cancer. Uh, they've given him probably maybe three or four more days to live. And, and, and so I'm thinking about them, the Kirkendall family. Uh, and, and my heart is just heavy for them as they're nearing, it, it seems, the, the end of his life. And, and, uh, and they're dealing with that. And, and I got an email at the beginning of this week. My uncle, my, my mom's brother, uh, uh, was diagnosed. Uh, with, they found a, a tumor on his colon. They went in today for surgery. I got another email today. Um, it spread to his liver and into his intestines, and they're removing as much as they can. It looks, it doesn't look good. They're going to do chemo as soon as it's over, and 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 it's just a, a distressing situation. And and what 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 makes my heart heavy is uh, Uncle Doug. That's my mom's brother. You know, my mom passed away in 2011, and she has she had one other brother besides Doug named Mark. Mark died. Uh, in Vietnam. He was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And so my grandparents, who are still alive in their 80s, uh, they are very um, likely facing uh, the loss of their third child. And, and I'm sitting here wondering how they can bear that. I don't know how I would bear it. Um, God would just have to just do something to carry me through. Um, but, but that's what they're facing. And so I'm, I'm thinking about all that, and I'm, I'm thinking about what's going on, and, and then I thought, boy, I'm, I'm so glad for promises. I'm so glad for things I can, I can cling to. For example, turn to, turn to Romans with me very quickly. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Let me give you an example of a, a promise that's good to cling to. Look in verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, life is difficult. Life is hard. Life can be gut-wrenching sometimes. But when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Because when we see the face of our Savior, all of that suffering will, will fade away in the light of His glorious grace. And we will see that it was worth it. Even though life was hard, it was worth it to cling to Christ. It was worth it to follow Christ. It was worth it to hold on to His promises, even though life was hard. Yes, life is very difficult, but there's something better coming, right? And the suffering of this world, it can't even be, you can't even compare it. It's not even on the same, same level as, as glory that we will experience in heaven. Then down in verse 28, we know, we know, we know, we know that God works everything uh, uh, together for good for those that love him, to those called according to his 
purpose. We, we know that God does that. That's a promise, right? We know that if we're His, we're His people, we love Him, we're called to His purpose, we know that everything in our life, good, bad, wonderful, tragic, everything in our life, God takes it, He takes it all, and in some sovereign way, He weaves it all together into something beautiful, something good. So wait, how can God do that? I don't know, but He's God and He can. And sometimes all we have are the promises. And we can't understand life, and we can't understand what God's doing, and we can't understand you know, why he's delaying and answering our prayers, and we can't understand why things are happening, but we can understand that God is going to work it for good, right? It's a promise. And, and you know why we can cling to that promise? Because God doesn't lie. If, the, if God says, I'm working everything together for your ultimate good, then it's going to happen because God doesn't lie. You can take it to the bank, right? And so we could go on and on looking at promises. Those are just promises that are fresh on my heart. Um, as I think about just people in my family and, and church family that are, that are just going through tough times right now. And I'm just grateful for promises. What about the promise of God's presence? He, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Do you believe that? Does God lie? And, and so when you walk through any valley, guess who's there with you? If you know Jesus, who's there with you? The Lord is there, right? He's there with you every step of the way. Listen, even if you don't feel him, even if you can't see his fingerprints on your life, he's there. And by faith, you know he's there. And you can trust that promise that he'll never leave you because he doesn't lie. And I could go on and on and on about God's great promises. But he is, he is, he is faithful. By the way, I'm really excited about the sermon Sunday. I'm finishing up Habakkuk. Uh, chapter 3, we're going to finish the book and finish chapter 3. And uh, it's, it's just a great passage about trusting God, even though the fig blossoms don't, don't bear fruit and, and life is falling apart around you. It's a great passage about trusting God in the midst of that. And I just, I'm just already praying that God would just give our church Sunday, that he, would just, that he would just show up and he would just give us wings of hope and just, just we would leave this place soaring. I'm, that's, I'm praying for that Sunday that God would just meet with us in a, in, a, in a significant way because I need to hear Sunday's message and you need to hear Sunday's message. And I'm telling you, it is, it, it's just powerful, powerful truth. I, I, I can't promise you that the presentation is going to be very good, but the truth in God's word is going to be good. So, so be here for Sunday uh, as we think about his promises to those that are hurting. And so God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. Secondly, I want to talk about God's faithfulness to care for the neglected. Look back with me in Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. I love God's compassion on display here. Genesis chapter 21. Look what happens in verse 8. The child Isaac grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, a little bit of background. If you remember, if you were here, uh, Abraham and Sarah got tired of waiting for God to give them a son. Remember that? And so they took matters into your own hands. Hey, come in close. Never a good idea to take matters into your own hands. Anytime you take something out of God's hands and put it in your own hands, 
not good. All right? They took it out of God's hands. And Sarah said, we'll come up with a plan for you to have a descendant. Here, here's my maidservant, Hagar. You take her, have relations with her, and she can bear you a son. And that'll be the son of the promise. And God said, that's not how it works. You don't, you don't take matters in your own hands. But they had a son named Ishmael. And we see here that Ishmael and Hagar, even though uh, they'd already been kicked out, are brought back into the household. God had provided for them out in the wilderness, brought them back in the household. But notice the dysfunction. You think your family has issues? Abraham's family had issues, and, and we're, not even get, we're not even scratching the surface. Wait till we get a little bit deeper into the patriarchs. I mean, there's some, there some crazy stuff we're going to study, all right? I mean, some major dysfunction. And so, so uh, Sarah has this son Isaac, but she looks over and she thinks that she sees uh, Ishmael, Hagar's son, who's older by this time, laughing. And she doesn't like this. She, she's uh, jealous. And so she tells Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Is that the right thing to kick him out because of her, of her mistake? No, of course it's not the right thing. But look what happens in verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham was early in the morning took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and watered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, a skin was a, a animal skin that held water, a canteen, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, let me not look on the death of the child. Can you hear the anguish of this mother? She, her, they're they're going to die of thirst in the desert, and she doesn't want to see her son suffer. She sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. Listen to verse 17. Oh, I love this. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy. Where he is? Up. Lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. She saw a well of water. She went, filled the skin with water, and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. He grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with a bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. His mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Astounding compassion on God's part. That he's dealing with such tenderness with Hagar and Ishmael. Even though they were going to one day cause problems for Israel, God is showing them personal kindness uh, as they are kicked out of Abraham's household and left in the wilderness to die. Now, what do we learn from this? Here's what we learn if you look in your notes. God fiercely loves people that are oppressed or that cannot care for themselves. Uh, Turn to Psalm chapter 10 very quickly. I'm going to show you just a couple verses. Psalm chapter 10. what it says in verse 17. Psalm 10, verse 17. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. He mentions here God's heart for the oppressed, God's heart for the downtrodden, God's heart for those that are uh, mistreated by others and cannot care for themselves. Look over in Psalm 68. Psalm 68. Look in verse 5. 
God here is called by David, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Love that description, God. Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, one that, that helps those that are in, in, in difficult situations. God loves to help those types of people out. And here's the second thought. Mistreating the weak or vulnerable is a sure way to invoke God's displeasure. Mistreating the weak or vulnerable is a sure way to invoke God's displeasure. Let me, let me make that a little more simple. Treating people badly that are downtrodden is a sure way to make God mad. All right? So turn with me to, to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22. Look what it says in verse 22. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord, the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Look over in uh, Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, verse 10. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. How many of you want God on your side? Raise your hand. If you want God on your side, don't mistreat the weak. Don't oppress the downtrodden. Christians should reflect the character of God and help those in difficult situations and lift those folks up, not take advantage of them. And God is, gets angry. God pleads the cause of the weak who can't, who can't fight for themselves. He comes to their aid. You don't want to get on the wrong side of God. Can I get an amen there? So see, God's faithfulness, he, he's there to help the downtrodden. He's there to help those that cannot help themselves. He, he cares for the neglected. But here's the third thing about God's faithfulness, and we'll be through. We see God's faithfulness to give Abraham favor with kings. Turn back to Genesis 21. I want to show you this. This is really fascinating, a fascinating end to the chapter. Verse 22, Genesis 21, verse 22. The Bible says, at that time, Abimelech, the king that he had lied to, and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. They recognized that God was blessing Abraham. Even though Abraham wasn't always worthy of the blessing, God was blessing him. Now therefore, why? Because God's faithful, right? Now therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I've dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And so this king doesn't want to be on Abraham's 
bad side. He recognizes God is with him, and so he enters into these treaties and and, and deals with him on this well issue. He doesn't try to destroy Abraham or take advantage of Abraham. He, he is showing Abraham favor. God is giving Abraham this favor with kings. It says he saw that God's hand was on him. Now listen to me. So wait, what's the application for us? All right, here's the application. When God has his hand on you, amazing things can happen. When God has his hand on you, amazing things can happen. Unless you think this is just a a, a wrong application of this text, turn over to Proverbs with me. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Look what Solomon says, the writer of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3. Verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Be faithful to God, as we're saying. Let love, uh, the, the love of God be in your life, the love for God be in your life. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So there is a, a way that we can live that God shows his favor to us and, 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 and causes his hand to rest upon us uh, as we live our lives. And when he does that, amazing things can happen. The Bible is full of examples of imperfect people that God had his hand upon and God used them in, in, in remarkable ways. For example, think about Joseph. Joseph, um, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery by his brothers because they were jealous of him and his relationship with their father and Joseph goes to Egypt, he, a, a, a lady lies about him assaulting her, uh, and he's thrown into prison. You think, well, that, that story's over. We're going to get to this in Genesis in a, in a few weeks. You think that, or a few months. You say, that, you say that, that story's over, he's in prison. But, but God knew where he was, and God had his, his hand on Joseph and a major plan for Joseph's life. And so, so through a series of providential circumstances and, and God's ability given to Joseph to to interpret dreams, Joseph becomes the number two man in all of Egypt and ends up saving his family. It's a remarkable story. It's how the book of Genesis ends. But, but God had his hand on Joseph. So he took him from a slave who was thrown into prison to the second most powerful man on the planet at that time. Also, you think about David. David was a shepherd boy, and God had his hand on him, and he killed Goliath, and, and he made him the, the king to succeed the faithless Saul. And God used him in remarkable ways and gave him great victories. He had his hand on David. Think about Daniel. Daniel was taken from uh, the, the nation of, of Judah into Babylon in captivity, in, in exile, uh, he was being trained in the ways of the Babylonians, and yet God has favor on him, and he becomes a powerful ruler. And even when people try to sub- subvert his leadership and try to get him into trouble, he's thrown in a lion's den, and guess what? God preserves him and gives him back his place of, of authority. Daniel was a man that had God's favor. Ezra and Nehemiah had favor with the Persian kings to, to return from exile and go back and rebuild the temple and the wall around Jerusalem. Remarkable how God gave them favor with kings. It didn't happen in this day and time, but he gave them favor. Esther, you know the story of Esther. Esther had God's favor. You weren't supposed to, she was the queen, but even the queen could not approach the king, right? The king had to, had to, to call for her. I tried that with Claire one night, it didn't work out so well. 
I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But the king had to call for her. And, 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 and Mordecai says, this wicked man Haman has uh, concocted this plot to, to destroy the Jewish people. And so you've got to go to the king and, and inter, intervene. You've got to intercede for your people. And she says, well, if the king's in a bad mood and I go to him and he doesn't call for me, he may kill me, but if I perish, I perish. God's appointed me for a time like this, I'm going to go. And God gives her favor. She goes and ends up saving the Jewish people through her bravery. God gave her favor with the king. And so we see that God does this. He takes ordinary folks, places his hand upon them, his supernatural hand, and then uses those ordinary folks to accomplish supernatural, amazing things, right? Now, question. Does that interest you at all? I mean, don't you want in on some of that? Well, that leads to the next, the next uh, sentence and the last sentence in your notes. We should seek God's favor in our lives. We should seek God's favor in our lives. Look over in Psalm 84. Almost done. Look in Psalm 84 with me. Psalm 84, verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk up rightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So it says there, God is one that does bestow favor. Favor comes from him. Look over in Psalm 86, verse 17. I love this verse. Prayer of David. Psalm 86, verse 17. David was always surrounded by enemies his entire life, it seemed like. And he says in verse 17, Show me a sign of your what? Favor, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So God, would you, would you let my enemies see that, that you have poured out your favor on me? Show me a sign of your favor. Let me see, let them see that you are with me, you are blessing me, you are helping me. Show me a sign of your favor. Good prayer to pray. And then look over in Psalm 90, verse 17. This is a prayer of Moses, another man that experienced God's favor. Psalm 90, verse 17, last verse, he says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And he's asking God here, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That word establish means to make permanent. So you know what he's saying here? He's saying, Lord, would you cause your favor to rest upon me so that our work will have lasting impact, so that our work will have permanence. So he's asking for favor for a purpose, right? Not just so he can walk around and, you know, be blessed by God and get good parking spaces at the grocery store. And that's not what, that's not what favor is, all right? When you hear preachers say that, then you need to turn the channel, all right? Favor is when God gives you supernatural wisdom and strength and guidance and blessing and relationships with others so that you can make a difference for his glory. So that you can serve him and make his name known. So you can, so you can be involved in, in things that matter to God and so that what you do can have permanence. So that, listen, he gives you favor so that your life will live on beyond you. 
So that even when you die, your legacy keeps on going because God has given you the favor of, of permanence. Your life makes a difference. That's why God gives us favor. And so I think it's altogether appropriate that we say, God, would you do that? Would you give me favor? Would you? I don't deserve it. That's grace, unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. I hadn't earned it. I stumble and fall just like Abraham, but, but I've repented and I'm going to try to walk in love and faithfulness. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed upon Jesus. And I'm asking God, would you cause your hand to rest upon me? Would you give me strength and power and wisdom so that I can faithfully serve you and make a difference in this world for your glory? Favor with purpose. I think it's altogether appropriate that we ask God to give us favor. I I would love to live the rest of my life with God's hand upon me. And and I hope that you have that same desire, that God would place his hand upon you and upon upon your family and, and that he would keep his hand upon Longview Point. You say, wait, I've had people ask me, you know, we started 2002, um, core group of 30, uh, 35 people uh, started in a converted hardware store in the downtown square. Uh, now on a, any given Sunday, we may have 700, 750. We've get, uh, been over 800 a few times since the beginning of the year. And so our numbers are, are growing. You say, wait, what, what, what was, you know, what, I've had people ask, what, what did you do? What's your methodology? What's your philosophy of ministry? And all that kind of stuff to, to, to explain the growth and all of that. Listen to me. And this isn't just preacher talk. And this isn't, this isn't false humility. I'm, I'm, I'm just being as, as dead level honest with you as I can be. The story of Longview Point is the story of God's hand resting upon a people. And let me just tell you, God has been better to our church than we deserve. You've got an imperfect pastor. We're, we're, none of us in this room claim perfection. We've all, we all stumble and fall and blow it just like Abraham did. But God has just has just caused his face to shine upon us. And you know what we should do with that with that that information? We should give him the glory, right? Any good thing you see happening along your point, to God be the glory, great things he has done. It's all about him. It's all about his hand. And so we praise him. And 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 that information should cause us to say, God, keep your hand on us. Don't don't take your hand off. We don't want to do church. We don't want to do ministry. We don't want to do worship or small groups or outreach or missions or any. We don't want to do anything without your hand upon us. Because what we do in our own strength won't last and won't be permanent. But when God's hand is upon a church, their ministry will have eternal impact. Amen? And so, I love this contrast. Genesis uh, 20 and 21. Genesis 20, honest look at Abraham. He stumbled and fell, just like we do, faithlessness. But aren't you glad in the midst of our faith, faithlessness, God is always faithful. Always faithful. And can I tell you this? When you're faithless, when you stumble and fall, God is always faithful to pick you back up. That's what, that's what David meant in Psalm 23 when he said, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. That word restores, it means that, that when you stumble and fall, he picks you up and puts you back on your, on your feet, right? Why? Because he's faithful. I'm glad God is faithful. I'm glad God is faithful.